Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. I'm your host, Anthony Corcoran. Welcome to Australian Basketball Coach. Uh, today, I'm pretty happy to have as a guest Rob Coulter from Basketball Victoria. So, welcome this morning, Rob. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, it's always nice to share the love with other podcasters. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a fun time for, for basketball in general, and, and podcasting is obviously a great way of staying in touch with all our coaches and our community as a whole as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and for people who might be listening but don't don't know, Rob's the host of the uh, Talking Split podcast, Basketball Victoria production and director of coaching there as well. So got plenty on the uh, list here to talk to you about today, Rob. So I think it'll awesome. be pretty interesting. Like, uh, and, and I guess where I normally start is just a little bit of background, you know, how Where'd you get started in basketball? Are you a, a Victorian through and through? <laughs> yeah, I am. And uh, I'm well aware that you've probably had a whole bunch of your listeners turn off uh, <laughs> consequently because of it. So it's, uh, yeah, my basketball sort of pathway started uh, way back in under eight. Um, I've, I happened to be friends with a kid at primary school whose parents were taking them down to play basketball at the local club. Uh, and my parents caught on a wind of it and thought, you're driving us crazy at home. Uh, <laughs> go and do it as well. So we sort of started at the same time in the in the domestic basketball club, uh, the Green Hills Basketball Club, which played as a part of Diamond Valley Basketball at the time. And you know, that's where my, my juniors sort of started and, and really went all the way through. It's uh, I was a bad basketballer. I was a tall basketballer, especially early. Like I was one of those fortunate kids that we talk about that, that grows early and has a lot of success in under sort of 10s and 12s because they're about a, a foot and a half taller than everyone else. But ultimately, I sucked. Like I really wasn't all that good. Uh, you know, my uh, my feet were doing one thing, my brain was telling them to do another thing, and my hands were somewhere in between. It's, uh, you know, I just wasn't a talented basketball. I loved it, but wasn't a talented basketball. So I sort of got to about under 16s and was sort of weighing up, uh, do I keep doing this or do I not keep doing this? And uh, kind of had a bit of a love for cricket at the time. And so by under 16s as a player, I'd sort of pulled out of the sport altogether. All right, uh, and went down a, a different pathway, which was a little bit more social. You know, I, I was happy to give up the, the six hours on a Saturday afternoon and things like that, and play cricket instead out in the sun. But um, yeah. but just before I'd, I'd sort of pulled the pin on all things basketball, my coach had sort of said to me, "It's like, oh look, we got a coaching course here next week. Uh, we sort of think you should come to it." And I'm like, nah, not a chance. Like <laughs> if uh, if I'm not playing, I'm not interested. And he's like, look. To be fair, uh, you know what you're supposed to do, but you have no coordination to do it. Uh, come and be a coach instead. Like you could see that I really love basketball and things like that, but I just wasn't having any success with it. So put me on the uh, the coaching pathway instead. And thankfully, it's been a, a really fruitful one for me um, overall. Like it's there are so many elements to coaching yeah. in particular that um, that are really beneficial to people's lives. Uh, so I went and did my, and back in the day, it was called a level one coaching course yep. uh, as a 15, 16 year old kid and, and actually didn't coach straight after that because I sort of walked away from basketball. But about a year and a half later, I bumped into my coach again and he's like, hey, we've got a, an under 10s team that we need a coach for. You're coming to do it. And didn't actually ask the question if I wanted the coach. He just said, you will be coming to do it and we'll see you at 4.30 at, at training. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I can't say no. Yeah. Uh, so turned up and, and was really lucky. Like I had a, a phenomenal group of parents that, that made my life really easy as a, a 16, 17-year-old coach that had 
done nothing uh, and they jumped in for the first time. They were just, hey, you do whatever you want with the kids. We'll get them there on time. We'll pick them up on time. Uh, you can do whatever you want. And they were Rupert kids. You know, they were just a, a school yeah. team that just enjoyed playing with each other. And, and that's where I kind of got a little bit of a love for coaching. It's like, actually, it's a lot of fun. I can have a lot of impact and, and still be involved with the sport. Yeah. Even though I suck as a player. Like, <laughs> this is a great result. It's, you know, I can potentially go and see a, a level of basketball that I couldn't experience as a player uh, by being a coach. So it's, uh, that's kind of where it, it started for me. I was, I was, again, I was really lucky, right time, right place. And I had a coach that uh, kind of looked a little bit past the fact that I you know, couldn't pass and catch. Uh, <laughs> to look mentally, he's probably where he needs to be to go and be a coach. Yeah, so, nice. Yeah, really lucky. Um, so were you, like you talked about cricket, but do you uh, play AFL as well? Like obviously that's huge down there. In no, it's, it was one of the things that I, I sort of grew up with a little bit of a love for it and thought, you know, I really like AFL and, and everything that goes with it. But just because when I was starting to get into that point where mum and dad, I was putting the pressure on to say, look, I wouldn't mind giving this a crack. Had um, I don't want to say stress fractures in my feet, but had sort of growing pains in my feet. Mm. Uh, because I was one of those kids that grew early and, and I ended up having to have sort of that two, three months off sport. So they sort of said, look, if you've got growing pains in the feet, the last thing we want you doing is kicking a footy around. That's just going to exacerbate those and, and cause more problems. So they went down the path of, uh, no, you're not playing footy anymore. So it's like, oh, I guess it's basketball. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's what we have. So I was probably one of the few that, that managed to get out unscathed uh, yeah. of being uh, hit with the AFL brush. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, we, we have so many athletes down here that play both and with the rise of AFLW as well, it's really sort of jumped over the other side of the sport as well, where a lot of our girls didn't want to play uh, AFL, whereas now that's an option for them. So mm. it's, uh, it's going to come more and more, I think, over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So I guess for me, you know, I'm a Queenslander and I'm, I'm looking at Melbourne and I've talked to, not, know a lot of, um, you know, Melbourne-based players who have come through different systems or everything, but like, where where would you say your roots are in terms of that association dynamic and, and where's your home club? Yeah, I think um, Green Hills Basketball Club will always be my home club. That's that's my domestic association. That's where I first started playing and that's where I first started coaching as well. So that will always be my um, my first uh, preference when I, if I was going to say anything. But they played at the Diamond Valley Association and I spent uh, over a, a decade uh, coaching there as well in the representative competition and yeah. and did a year of assisting the Siebel women as well with my partner so um, All right. yeah it's uh yeah that would be where i'd sort of consider myself to be based out of and i still live 10 minutes away so it's All right. uh, you know Sweet. really easy on my regard <laughs> <laughs> so i guess again for you know people who non-melbournians like uh, how, how do you describe that sort of competitive culture across melbourne clubs i know uh when i, when I early in my podcast i talked with um, simon mitchell and, and ian stacker about the um into you know sort of melbourne rivalry there and obviously i think some people it goes back a long way so yeah what's your experience like uh yeah it's pretty intense it's um (laughs) and because everything's so close to each other as well it's um like we are talking literally uh so using diamond valley for example eltham basketball club is five minutes away uh basketball club is 10 minutes away um, Whittlesea is five minutes away. Keelor oh, right. is 15 minutes away. So there's, you're really sort of on top of each other quite a lot. So yep. you do get a chance to build up those rivalries really quickly because there's just such a large weight of numbers of athletes that play down here. Like the, uh, the competition size is out of control and you don't sort of realise it until you get down here uh, that whilst the same level of travel doesn't exist necessarily as it would in, say, Queensland or someone like that, yep. it's, you know, you, you get smashed with basketball down here. Like, you play a lot. 
Um, and so consequently that, that drives the, the competitiveness and you know, the, this, the small clubs in particular that will have their own rivalry, but the rivalry overall uh, is a really cool one as well. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Uh, yeah, I think we got that a little bit here in Brisbane, but yeah, certainly, you know, every other town in Queensland, well, maybe Sunshine Coast, I've got two clubs yeah, up there now, sure. but everywhere else it's, uh, you know, one association, one town sort of thing, but there, there, yeah. there are club rivalries, you know, within each town too. So I guess before we get on to all things basketball, I, I just was sussing you out on LinkedIn and I noticed um, you and I have another thing in common, like uh, we both work with the police. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was a finance manager up in Toowoomba, uh, okay. and I noticed you were a um, working with the Air Wing there with Victoria Police. Um, how was that experience like? And you know, like uh, from a work from a career point of view, and um, you know, I guess one of the things I'm keen to ask you in this context is, um, you know, this. There's a little bit of a distinction when you work with police about the sworn and unsworn stuff. And um, <laughs> how'd you find that? Yeah, actually, really good from where I was. So uh, I was lucky. I, I sort of started um, with what was called wellbeing services at the time, which was a lot around police psychology, welfare, peer support, and those kind of areas as well. So they were really welcoming of me um, as to when I first sort of joined as an unsworn member. Uh, and they were, I mean, they got it. I suppose from a, they weren't the people that were necessarily on the van all the time or dealing mm. with the mass callouts and things like that. They sort of understood it from a holistic perspective that eventually we need to look after the member as such. So they were really welcoming uh, when I was there as well, and uh, a little bit of my time was spent with the Equity and Conflict Resolution Unit at the time right. as well. So a little bit of again, you're dealing with people that that kind of get it, I suppose, from that holistic perspective of it's not just about going and dealing with an incident. Yeah. It's about how can you support the members outside of that as well, and. And after about sort of four or five years, I think it was in uh, in that scope, the job came up at the police air wing and applied for it and got it. And, you know, I literally walked in on day one and they're like, excellent, uh, welcome. Uh, we'll take you up in the chopper and we'll see how it looks. And I was like, damn, how good is this job? Like, this is fantastic. Like, if this is what I'm going to be doing all the time, it's going to be great. And obviously, it's not the case. Uh, I spent a lot more time doing the admin behind the scenes. So, making sure um, all the, the finances sort of worked out. Uh, yeah. where they needed to work out as well because obviously there's a, a fairly significant cost associated with um, with putting a helicopter in the air as well. So yeah. we needed to make sure that that everything married up everywhere. Uh, so it's it sort of lent into my admin skills fairly well. But I mean, the bit I probably appreciated about that that I, I probably don't get now working for Basketball Victoria is that when I walked out the door at 3 p.m., I walked out the door at 3 p.m. and there yeah. was that was it. You, you didn't have anything else afterwards. It was my hours were 7 till 3 and that's what I did. Yeah, uh, you didn't have access to emails on your phone or anything like that. Which, you know, there's a there's a positive to that, I suppose, as well. In that yeah, you do get yeah. your personal time is your personal time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, wouldn't change it. Like it was a it was a lot of fun and, and met some phenomenal people in there as well. And and similar sort of deal when I worked at the Air Wing, uh, the sworn members there were just good people. You know, yeah. they but they were lucky in in a lot of ways as well that the things they had to go and deal with weren't necessarily dealing with the the really critical incidents where you had to interact with people that are potentially uh, not quite right because of substance abuse or anything like that. They were they were lucky enough that they were slightly removed from that yeah. uh, in that they could just they fly the air wing chopper around and the worst they had to deal with, which is still horrible in its own right, is um, potential fatalities and things like that, mm. which they had to take uh, the, the, the air ambulance to as well. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 similar to you, yeah, my experiences were, you know, they're very, very tight bunch of people, like especially the, the yep. Swan guys and, you know, very genuine in what they do and, and hats off to them. Um, they do a great job yeah, day in, day out. Uh, absolutely. I can't speak highly enough of them, honestly. It's, uh, you know, we, were real, we are really lucky in the, the police that we have that I've worked with in particular have been great people. Yeah. Um, so, and they they see it from the big picture. And if you ask them for anything, they were always very accommodating and would would always help out. So, yeah, really lucky on my end. Yeah, nice. Well, let's um, talk about your podcast a little bit. The, the Talking yep. Split podcast. How is that entity born? And uh, and I suppose the other question is, how has it evolved now? Like two to three years down the track for you? Yeah, it's uh, it sort of came about. Um, I was. Pretty, oh, I was a bit crook in about 2017, I think it was. Uh, had to go to hospital uh, and spend a, about a week in hospital. And it's just like, I'm kind of bored. Like, I needed my fix of basketball. I wasn't getting it at the time. <laughs> yep. uh, and at that point, there weren't many basketball podcasts around. You know, no. There were, you know, a couple of um, NBA ones where it's like, well, that'll be where I get my fix. And there might be a college one you can get every now and again. And, and it's like, well, I'll listen to that and that's how I'll get it. And it's like, actually, we don't have anything. And anything we did have was really American. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it was just, it's not really relevant to the everyday coach that's in Australia or in mm. particular at the time Victoria. So yep. uh, once I got back to work, sort of floated a couple of ideas as to, you know, is there a better way of interacting with our coaches, uh, technology and social media? And we've obviously experienced that over the last couple of months as well. The interaction between coaches has been out of this world good. Uh, and it's like, well, there's a, a really easy way of doing this and we can just make our own podcast. And I was really fortunate that working with Justin Shaw, who's now at Melbourne United, and, and Mike Zeppel, that's a, an assistant coach at, at UC Riverside in the States, uh, just sort of threw it at them and said, look, is there any interest? And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll give it a crack and we'll see how it looks. And, uh, and it turned out to be really fun. Like we just we enjoyed it. It was it was on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, both of them could roll into the office and just go, look, we can tune out here and we can just talk basketball for a couple of hours. And and that was where it sort of started from. Yeah. Uh, and eventually we managed to to get Justin his job at Melbourne United. We we still take credit for that. Uh, <laughs> that we we managed to move him on. And you know then then Mike moved on to to UC Riverside and for a while there. And it was probably over a year. It didn't sort of function because it was just me. Uh, and oh, I was right. like, oh, geez, I don't really think anyone's going to listen to me talk for an hour <laughs> uh, on basketball coaching in particular. So um, recently we just had uh, four high-performance coaches appointed for, for Basketball Victoria. Yeah. Um, Thankfully, I'm engaged to one of them, so she doesn't have a choice. She has to be on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, but, you know, between Zoe, uh, Ash Arnott, Nathan Cooper-Brown and Jenny Screen, we, we have a lot more content now. So it's kind of evolved a little bit into a bit of a rotating panel as to who's available and who's around and, and what we can do with it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, interesting you mentioned Mike Zeppel. I, um, you know, just by chance, I uh, reached out to Dave Patrick during the week yep. and did a podcast with him and he, he mentioned Mike as well. So, yeah, it's funny how these paths cross in basketball. Yeah, absolutely. All the and, time. And those, um, those sort of Australian roots that like Dave Patrick has as well, it's, it's mm. amazing how often those are connected throughout the, the coaching fraternity. It's uh, the, the family tree of coaching is a phenomenal one. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, yeah, how do you guys identify content for each episode? You, you talked a little bit, you know, uh, and again, like I, I listen to every one of your podcasts, so uh, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. But, um, yep. you know, what's in it for uh, for, for coaches specifically? Yep. And, and, and also, I know on, on your podcast too, you, you're sort of talking a little bit to, to players and parents too. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope you're one of those people that have left the five-star rating and review, of course. Of it's, course, uh, mate. <laughs> exactly. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a, a tough one because 
there's only so many things you can really talk about before you start repeating yourself as well. And we mm. do want to make it sort of a, as fresh as possible for for anyone to listen uh, that has an interest in it. Because we looked at it as who's actually a target audience. And it's like, well, do we pitch this at high performance type coaches? In which case, there's not really many listeners available in that space that would want to listen to that sort of content or do we pitch it at the domestic coaches where there's obviously a, a massing of, of people that coach at the domestic level but probably don't really have the time to listen to it either. So we tried to go fairly general with it and we'll sort of talk up and talk down. If we had a, a topic in particular, we'll sort of say, look, if you're dealing with under 10s, under 12s, here's what we'd be talking about. If we deal with a, a senior athlete, here's what we'd be talking about in that situation as well. So it is a little bit difficult uh, trying to find content and sometimes it'll just be a case of, well, someone's emailed in and said, can you just talk about this? I'm like, yeah, no worries. Like, we'll go away yeah. and research it a little bit and come back. So the interaction with the coaches has been outstanding. Like, we Honestly, we, we couldn't produce that. Well, there'd be no need to produce it if they didn't listen. Um, yeah. So so from our end, it's, it's really easy to do because we just get to talk basketball for an hour or so. Yeah, yeah. What everyone wants to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I guess I, I wanted to move in a little bit to your coaching philosophy. And and like I said, you obviously have uh, been a head coach down there at, with Vic Metro uh, at a, or assistant coach and head coach of different junior rep teams and also been involved with, you know, association-based teams as well uh, as a director of coaching and also like a coach of, you know, the senior teams too. So I guess how would you describe your own coaching philosophy? Uh, constantly evolving is probably <laughs> the best way to describe it. It's uh, it'll change uh, fairly regularly, uh, but what I've tried to be a little bit better at is that I, I don't change quite as often as the amount of information I I bring in. It's uh, just because I hear something new doesn't mean that changes my whole philosophy on something. I sort of needed to be tested a couple of times yep. before I would shift. The big thing for me. Um, and I say this in, in every coaching course I've ever delivered, it's uh, I'll have a parent meeting at the start of the season and just talk through, look, who I am, uh, what I'm about as a coach. And, you know, I cover off three main areas. Uh, my job is to keep your child safe. My job is to make sure your child has fun. And my job is to make sure your child gets better. And, you know, that'll look slightly different for everyone. You know, there are some athletes that obviously really excel and, and some that don't. Uh, but as long as I cover off on those three areas, then I feel like I'm doing my job as a coach and, yeah. and every parent will have different expectations on, on what all three of those look like. But as long as I, I feel like if I hit those three, then it's a good experience for the athlete. And that's really what it has to be. It's um, it's not about me as a coach and it's about the players. If we don't have players, we don't need coaches. Uh, and that's the, the bit that I think gets lost at times is that mm. it's great to go and do PD and, and you know, I'm all for the amount of um, you know, free webinars that have been around, especially of late and, and coaching podcasts and clinics and all that sort of stuff. It's been phenomenal. Uh, that's a time where it can be about us as coaches. But once we step on the court, it needs to be about the players and what do they need and, and how can I best service that and facilitate that as well. It's, yeah. um, it's really hard jumping between an under 12 team and a senior team, which I've had to do in the past or a big metro team and another 12 team but my probably passion I suppose would actually lie with the under 12s like if, if someone turned around tomorrow and said you could have your pick of the teams which would you want I'd take a 12s team yeah yeah uh, that's where I think I have the most impact yeah yeah I, I saw that uh, in a diagram once you know like it was talking about the skill of the um, coach compared to you know the I guess the ability and, and the level of the of the players you were coaching and, and you know the recommendation was put your best coaches you know in the younger age groups because that's where you know a lot of the the major impact can be made absolutely and I think it's it can be often viewed as a bit of a slight 
when you're asked to go and do a younger age group for an experienced mm. coach. Uh, and it's like, well, I've been coaching for 20 years and you want me to go and take an under 12 team? Like that's where normally the entry level coaches come in at, at under 12. And, and in fairness, it's probably apparent in most situations like yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, there's got to be some value in putting your better coaches with your better athletes because that's their first experience in the game. Um, especially in those younger age groups, they walk in, they don't have any expectations. So you can guide them on that pathway. And it's like, actually, here's what potentially coaching on a Friday night in the VJBL would look like. You know, yep. we need you there half an hour early. If you're going from east to west, allow for traffic problems. Like it's, you can, it's not just educating the, the players. But it's educating the parents that potentially haven't been involved with that level as well. So it's, I think there's a, a huge amount of value in having your best coaches with your youngest athletes. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So what are the things, uh, you know, in that space, what works for you, like uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're a coach? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, a funny one because I'm a, um, a fairly dry, sarcastic person at the best of times, <laughs> which doesn't usually resonate with under 12s. Athletes. <laughs> I don't get it yet. So you have to change your, your language around it. You can't just make a flippant comment and expect them to understand it. It's like, hey, you're doing a really poor job coming off that flare screen. It needs to be better. And they wouldn't understand that at all. So you need to be yeah. really deliberate with what you say. Um, and I've had a, a lot of experience uh, and positive experience on my end with, through sort of game-based learning. So yep. with under 12 athletes, I do a lot of two-on-one, three-on-two, four-on-three, the disadvantage type basketball. Sometimes it'll be out of a just, I'm talking to them, go and just play. Sometimes we'll put them in a scenario where uh, the defense will be on the offense's back on the wing and there has to be rotation occur and we'll work it out from there. But I find that putting them into situations where they can learn uh, through gameplay is far more beneficial than any blocked training that I would do with my athletes so I try and get as many skills into one situation as I can so the scrimmage type things are, are far more beneficial on my end yeah yeah uh, I mean how do you know when something's not working uh your kids are bored <laughs> well that's usually the the first sign for me is they're not paying attention anymore and yeah. and that's the the biggest thing I, I really fear uh, a training session where my kids have checked out and that's when yeah. I sort of need to really look at it myself as a coach and say well what am I doing because they're not the problem uh the problem is that I haven't adjusted to what they need at that point yeah so I need to be more mindful and that's, there's a lot of things that contribute to that that can be body language where they're just you know they're looking at the sky or you know they're looking over on what's going on on the other court and, and mm. things like that. They can be um, their, their communication to you. They can literally come out and tell you, I'm bored. I don't want to do this anymore. And it's like, well, yeah, I get it. And sometimes you need to be in defensive stance. So it's not fun. But, <laughs> you know, we have to do it and we have to teach it. So there's, um, there's a lot of, of ways that we need to sort of make sure that our athletes are, are still engaged in the training sessions. And, and that is through more gameplay. And there mm. was a, there's a great coach educator by the name of Wayne Goldsmith who I've, I've read a lot of his stuff as well. And he's like, well, we need to make our training sessions more like Fortnite because that's what our kids are playing at the moment. They're all playing video games and the like, and, and that's what they want to do because it's, it's instant gratification, but it is a game. They're not yeah. sitting there learning drills on computer games. They're learning how to play, and that's yeah. what our training sessions need to look like. And I've absolutely been guilty of it in the past where if the behavior's been a little bit average or their attention's been a bit average at, at training sessions, it's like, hey, if you don't pay attention now, we won't have time for a game at the end. And I should have actually flipped that, and I should have been using more games throughout my training sessions to make sure I had their attention and their engagement as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. What about low, like where I guess people uh, want to keep emphasizing, oh, you know, what's lacking is skills. You know, players don't have the skills. They don't have the footwork. They don't have the, you know, passing skills and whatever. But, and when you say, and I totally agree with you, like playing games is where you learn also. But it, there's a balance there. And, um, there is. and, and how do you, how do you find that? 
Yeah, it's a tough one. So I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a two out of three of my drills in a training session need to be games. Yeah. Uh, so I'm happy to sit there and do some form shooting. No problem at all with that because I, I still think there's a lot of value in that. But I just need to make sure that when I plan out my training session, my drill before it or my, and my drill after it are something game-related so that I've still got their engagement because the attention span of their younger athletes in particular, not fantastic. You know, They need something to be challenged by and they need something new fairly regularly and they don't really understand the value in something like form shooting where they just stand there and shoot at a basket. They don't get it yet. So I need to make sure that, okay, I'm still going to get what I want in that I'm going to get my form shooting in, but you'll get what you want as well. And I'll make sure that you're up and about before you go into it and you're straight into another game afterwards. So trying to plan out your training session to make sure that you're getting everything that you need to get out of the athletes is, is a really important part of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, let's talk about uh, Vic Metro and uh, yep. basketball as a, as a former head coach uh, and assistant coach of, of Vic Metro teams. And I suppose uh, where I'm coming from is, uh, yeah, I, I played against Vic Metro back in my junior days and under-18s yep. and under-20s and, um, you know, some good players and obviously guys who are still involved like Darren Perry and Shane Froling and, and Steve yep. Lennart and, and back in the 80s. So um, I guess my... Um, yeah, I've always been very uh, had a competitive attitude when it comes to nationals and and you know trying to beat the Vicks. So um, yep. I had a bit of a chat with Warwick Can and Luke Can too here from Basketball Queensland about the style of play. And I guess what I would like to know is uh, what are you guys at Victoria Basketball doing in terms of style of play, and how do you you know reach that out to uh, to the rep player group? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one because every state will be a little bit different and we're obviously lucky that we have a large weight of numbers in Victoria. So we have a lot more depth to pick from when we potentially pick our state teams and the like, uh, which I think if you went to uh, any AJCs, for argument's sake, the first five, six players on the vast majority of the state teams would be roughly comparable with every yeah. state. Yep. But it's the depth that really sort of wins out uh, with a lot of the big Metro teams. It's that 7 through 10 tend to be a little bit stronger because they have to, you know, play so regularly on a Friday night. And, you know, the VJBL does that for us. At, yep. um, it competes our kids into getting used to being in competition. It's um, And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of arguments about do we play too much or do we not play enough and how can we do it better? Uh, but at an AJC's, that probably does help us in, in all honesty just with depth um, they're used to being in that situation because they play so many games on a Friday night uh, where they have to be competitive now yeah, is it yeah. as competitive as it probably was 10 15 years ago maybe not and that could have something to do with the fact that we now have 20 teams in VC rather than the 10 uh, but there's, there's ways around that too so when we start looking at style of play we're, we're really aware that every club will have something a little bit different yeah. that they teach their athletes that then we have to try and mould into uh, potentially a Vic Metro or a Vic Country team and it will change a little bit for everyone. So I know Justin Schuller, when he was in the Victoria Country Chair, uh, was really big on his system of play being implemented at all country associations throughout. And so there was consistency with how it was taught so that by the time they've come through, say, Trelgan, for argument's sake, yep. they've learnt the same as the Horsham athletes. So by the time they hit a Vic Country team, it's just excellent. Now let's make it all fit together. Mm. Uh which is great. I mean, it works in that regard. Uh, but you're also relying a lot on your coaches on the ground to make sure they bought into that philosophy as well and they're teaching it the same way, which can be problematic. It's, yeah. it's not always that easy. In the big metro side, I mean, we're, we're super lucky that we have so many uh, great coaches coaching on Friday nights and we look at just the, the group of directors of coaching that we have in Victoria. Like We have ex-NBL players, coaches, 
you know, it's it's phenomenal just the 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 scope of coaching that we have here. Uh, so having everyone on the same page with that becomes really problematic too because they all have their own opinions on how everything needs to look. So yeah, we're, it, it's tough. Like it's it's trying to find a way to to appease everyone. And I know um, the four HP guys that are now in their chairs at the moment have done a great job of saying, well, look, let's stop worrying about teaching set offenses. Let's stop worrying about this is the offense we're going to run or this is the play we're going to use. Let's just teach them how to play and let's really focus on, let's get a skill set developed for our athletes that they can just, it's almost like drag and drop. If we were to drop you in New South Wales, you'd be able to play. If we were to drop you in WA, you'd be able to play yeah. without that that need of, I can only run this system this way. Yeah. So it's more about teaching the, the holistic and it's more about um, how to play and not what to run that we're trying to go down the path of. Yeah, so I guess for your, um, I'm probably talking Vic Metro, Vic Country sort of, you know, head coaches, like, uh, and you sort of touched on this a little bit, but what, how much personal choice do they get in terms of what they need to run and, you know, what they think might work for, for that group of players that they've got? Yeah, it's, uh, if you get a, a state coaching job in Victoria, you, you're obviously, um, you've beaten out some people to get it. Like yeah. it's, it's not a case of you're the only person left and, and away you go and do it. And so there has to be some trust putting the coaches in that perspective. So there's an element of um, we're not going to tell you how to coach it because that's not fair. So yeah. you pick whoever you want to pick. You've been entrusted with this position and they have to go through a fairly lengthy uh, interview process yep. as well, which is, you know, video and show us how you want to play and, and all these kinds of things. And if you're entrusted with that job, well, you're entrusted with that job. Like you're now responsible for everything that comes underneath it though. So you're accountable for the bad stuff. You're accountable for the good stuff uh, and everything in between. So there's a, there's not a, a case of you have to run this offense and that's yep. it. Uh, yep. It's, it's more a case of, well, you pick the team that suits you and you put them in the style that suits you as well with the obvious part of, look, we don't want our players you know, only having one job. Like We don't want our post player to only ever get to play on the left low block and that's it. Yeah. We want them to have that ability to pick and pop or pick and roll or stretch or, or hammer screen or whatever the case may be. We want to give them as many opportunities to go and be basketballs as possible because not everything is, is prescribed. I mean, you know, how often do you see that at a senior level in particular where you, know, you can do whatever you want but someone scouted it? So yeah, eventually yeah. basketball will have to take over and the decision-making and it, we can't give them all the answers all the time. So as more frequently as we can put them in situations where they've seen that you know, scenario before, they'll make better decisions because of it. Yeah. And when, uh, I guess, coaches are in that situation, they're doing trials and, you know, you're getting to the pointy end of the stick with team selections. Like, what are the things they're, they're looking for? Like when they're separating, you know, like, getting it down from a group of 30 to a group of 12. Yeah, well, to be honest, even getting it down to a group of 30 is bloody hard. Yeah. Uh, so I think the last year I did uh, the Vic Metro team for the 16 boys was 2016, uh, and we had 146 athletes to our first trial. So right. getting it down yeah. from that number, even 230, is really difficult. Uh, we, we gradually whittle that down over the course of a few weeks, but once we get down to around about that 30 number, for the under-16 boys, we have what we call our under-16 combine, Yep. where our country and our metro teams, well, so the last 30, come in on a on Labor Day weekend. They'll play each other over a series of games that day. Coaches can sit there, take notes, look for what they want to look for, and, and away they go, so to speak. With the under-18s, uh, they go to East Coast Challenge in oh, January. Okay. So they'll yep. be at the same sort of point. They'll normally have 20 to 24. Um, they'll go and play at East Coast against New South Wales, ACT, and South Australia, and they'll pick their teams out of there. So And every coach will want a little bit, you know, 
slated to what they want to coach and the things. But the big things we're really looking at, uh, can they shoot it? Uh, what are they like in 1v1 offense? What are they like in 1v1 defense? What's their physical literacy like? Like, can they, are they coordinated? Uh, what's their IQ like? And do they have competitiveness? Like, because we, it's all well and good to say, oh, pick the long-term athlete. But if that long-term athlete doesn't want to be there, well, there's not much point picking them as well. So that might be a case of you don't pick them in the team, but you at least keep them around as an emergency and see if you can bring that out of them. Because in a lot of cases, we don't really know who's coached these athletes prior to yeah. us. Like we might be walking in, and I know I've certainly done it, is pick an athlete that's only been playing for 12 to 18 months in a state team. And it's like, well, that athlete knows nothing. Yeah. By the time they got to us, like in a lot of ways, they can be good because they have no bad habits either. Yeah, uh, yeah. but it, it's really difficult to try and you know scope out uh, everything you want. And there are so many different scenarios as well. Like what happens if that player goes down, or can I plan for this? And you know, what have the other states potentially got at the same time? And it was really interesting. I was sitting in a couple of selection meetings, and and it got brought up. Uh, like we have to think about what they have, what they have, what they have, what they have. Where in previously, it's like nah, stuff that uh, <laughs> we'll just pick what we want, and yep. they have to adjust to us. Like it's go the other way. So it's really difficult uh, depending on where you're based and what your talent pool is like because it, it does change every year. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And, and do you think just on that sort of aspect as well? I guess you know, as you say, a team will get picked at the end of the day, and and players are going to miss out. So. What's, uh, I guess, some of the practical learnings just in terms of if, say, you're talking to a coach and they know this is coming up and they've got to uh, get ready to deliver some bad news, but what's you know, some of the practical uh, tips or, or learnings you can give to, to coaches when you get, they've got to have those conversations? Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's a really great way of doing things, but sometimes it's a really horrible way to do it, but I'm always a believer in do it face-to-face. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a, a huge fan of put things online or what's in via email because then you have kids sitting there hitting refresh every 30 seconds trying to find out if they've made the team or not. I'm, I'm sort of a, the band-aid method of just rip it off straight away, yeah, like, yeah. get it done. But there's a little bit of preparation that goes into that beforehand. So we would usually talk to the parents once we're at that 30 point and it's like, well, you need to prepare your athlete for or your child for three scenarios uh, in the team, emergency or out of the team. So go and have that conversation with them about, well, do they even want to be an emergency? Because we've had a number of athletes over the years say, look, I'll play if I'm in the team, no problems. But if I'm an emergency, I'm not interested in that. And I can completely understand it too. Like that's a a tough road to go down. So prepare them for all of those scenarios uh, and be mindful that everyone's going to react to it slightly differently. So my last experience with the 16 boys uh, at that combine weekend, so we delivered the information and the, the final team to the parents first. So we had the, the athletes on court. They were doing what they were doing in their cool down. We picked our team. We went and told the parents uh, what it was going to be uh, just so they knew what they were going to be dealing with. They didn't have to have that awkward conversation with their child about Jamaica and then the, the athletes forced to say, no, I missed out, which can be really confronting for them too. So we were really big on tell the parents, then we'll go tell the athletes. Uh, and really all the athletes are hearing at that point is, am I in or am I out? Yeah. So we try not to give too much uh, feedback in that situation. It's more a case of, look, here's the team. Thanks. If you're an emergency or if you've missed out, you guys can leave um, at that door. Your parents will be sitting there waiting and you can boot off and do what you need to do. Uh, if you've made the team, we just ask that you hang around. We then bring the parents in and say congratulations effectively. Uh, you've made a team. Uh, here's where the hard work sort of starts and sort of plot out a little bit of the road ahead for them. 
following that, we'll then send feedback to the the athletes that have been unsuccessful as well. So yeah. just to make sure they do have something they can take away from it. Um, and it won't be anything except like it's not going to be a four-page scouting report on why they missed out or anything like that. And unfortunately, some really talented kids do miss out. And, mm. and it's really hard to give that information that uh, actually you're the, the potentially the sixth best player in this state, but you're the third best point guard. And yeah, it just yeah. didn't work. Like it's you know the checks and balances didn't work out for you in this situation. So you have to give something specific for them to go away and work on. Now whether they want to work on that or not, that's really up to them afterwards. But yeah, it really is a case of well, here's why we made the decision because of this. Yeah, and away they go. And have you seen uh, some situations where some of those kids have gone away? The kids who missed out have gone away and you know taken the feedback on board and um, and you know the next time you've seen them in that sort of uh, rep team situation, they've just you know, smash it out of the park? Yeah, no question. It's, yeah. Uh, it happens quite a lot, in all honesty. Um, I think there's a, we were looking at it not too long ago, there's around about a 50 to 60% retention rate from under 16s to under 18s. Okay. Uh, with, with the big Metro teams in particular. So, you know, there's usually four or five spots up for grabs by the time it rolls around in two years' time. And, and very rarely, oddly enough, is it the emergency that makes it. It's usually a, an athlete that's missed out in that 20 to 35 yeah. Type of year, uh, that has all of a sudden grown, has all of a sudden been really driven and committed to it um, and has gone and done the work. Like I remember we had a really difficult selection uh, as we were, I think, from 35 down to 20 uh, a couple of years ago and we were really arming and ahhing on what we were going to do with it. We made the call that there were three athletes we could take and we took one and the other two athletes missed out who were both involved in our state development program, so both talented athletes. Uh, the two athletes that walked away that had missed out, one of them found the eight-foot ring and started dunking on the eight-foot ring, and I can kind of understand, maybe get the frustration or the disappointment out <laughs> by doing that. Uh, the other athlete that missed out started working on solo timeouts and you know pivots and, and ripping the ball through and, and trying to become a better athlete, and that athlete's gone on to, to represent at higher level since. So it's really about what they do with the feedback once they've got it. Um, it's not the same for everyone. It's, yeah, you know, it's some um, we've we've seen so many times that they um, a player that potentially misses out that says, right now I'm a footballer, and and why they go. Oh, so okay, that's going to happen too. So we can't uh, always predict the future, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, and do you have? I guess yeah, we're talking about it. Probably uh, what the athlete might do with that feedback, but how do the parents manage it? You know, like sometimes that's the bigger hurdle in terms of uh, I think the player. Sometimes you know takes that feedback and says, "Yeah, okay, fair enough," but it's the, the parents uh, who who may uh, have more trouble in terms of accepting what you've what you've provided. How do you guys manage that? Yeah, that's never a fun one. Uh, <laughs> it's it's more conversations though. It's yeah. uh, a lot can be really misconstrued via email. Yeah. Uh, so as much as we send feedback potentially via email afterwards, a lot of that can either go over their head or it can be read in rage or, you know, we've simply done a poor job of explaining it. So in that situation, it's just pick up the phone and talk through it. Uh, yeah. Or it yeah. might be a case of, look, I know you're playing at 8.40 this week at, at Melbourne Sports Aquatic Centre. I'll come down and meet you beforehand and we'll talk our way through it as well. So a lot of the times um, the athletes actually know themselves uh, okay, yeah, I, I think I'm behind 
in this area and, and that's pretty accurate but as parents they can usually go into a really defensive mode and no one wants to see their child upset or disappointed or anything like that so they can be really protective of that too mm. so it's just you know, we try not to deal with anything within that first 24 hours uh, obviously because that's when everyone's highly emotional you know yep. it's very raw um, you know you're not really going to hear anything or have a, a really constructive conversation in that time but a little bit removed from that that's when you can you can sort of peel it back a little bit and say well okay here's why uh, and in a lot of cases I mean coaches don't pick teams to lose that's yeah. the the big thing like no one is going out of the way to say you know what I'm leaving at this really talented kid uh, regardless of anything else it doesn't happen like we want the talented athletes so um, it's trying to get everyone to understand well okay this might be a good reason sometimes players miss out like Bogut's the greatest example we have uh, didn't make a state team until under 20s yep. um, yeah there's nothing wrong with that there were just better players ahead of him in 16s and 18s and he worked and he grew and by 20s he was right to go yeah. So it happens. Not everyone's on that same path. And that, that pathway is not necessarily a linear pathway where you just move from one spot to the next spot. It's, you know, that's usually the whole three steps forward, two steps back, then one forward, four back, and then six forward, two back. It's it's constantly evolving. And, and do you find a lot of kids at that level down there in Victoria, are they um, getting exposed to the seniors? Like say they're under 18, under 20. I, I would expect they're already getting exposed to the senior level competitions as well, like either, you know, I guess NBL one or, or or something like that. Yeah, a lot of our athletes do play sort of youth league. Um, more talented athletes will will jump on the end of say an NBL one bench. Yeah. Um, not usually do they get the opportunity to play, uh, and the balancing act, of course, with that as well is, is just how much our athletes are doing so potentially in that situation they could be doing two junior sessions uh then you throw on two senior sessions potentially two sdp sessions as well Mm, Uh, if they happen to go to a school there's probably two sessions for them as well god forbid at some point they do some schoolwork um (laughs) and take care of that side of things like there really aren't enough hours in the day and and trying to get everyone on the same page with that because of course everyone feels like their program is the most important yeah. So it's trying to find a way to balance that out for everyone so that we're not breaking the athlete as well is is a really important part. And in particular, how our athletes return after this extended break that they've just had yeah. is of vital importance because we can't just turn the tap back on and away we go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys talked a bit about that on the podcast. Uh, was it last week or the week before? Uh, yeah, last week. Yeah. yeah, it was good. So let's talk about, I guess, you've got a coach education sort of role there too. and. Just listening again uh, to your podcast, some of the networking and development events that you guys talk about, but can you just talk through a few of those things and, and sort of, I guess I'm just keen to understand how you came up with that direction in terms of, of what you do with coaches. Yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're really mindful that we have some really distinct categories of coaches uh, and there's obviously the parents that are sometimes under duress, in fairness, about <laughs> having to coach a team because no one else has put their hand up. So we're conscious we have to cater to those, that sort of party. Uh, the ones that are current players, so they're potentially a 16, 17-year-old athlete that is giving back to the club by coaching a team somewhere. So they have different needs and abilities as well. There are, there are people that have coached for 35 years on a, on a VJBL level. So we need to try and find a way to cater to those coaches as well. There are ones that have aspirations to move on and potentially be involved with state teams, national teams and the like as well. It's, it's a really um, broad scope of people that actually coach in particular. Mm-hmm. So trying to find a way to cater to all of them can be problematic at times. It's um, And 
convenience wins out in a lot of cases. It's uh, if we're going to take a coaching course somewhere, we need to know that there's enough interest in that area to potentially run it there as well. So it's we we're not in the the business of running a coaching course for three people. Obviously, there's not a lot you can do in that situation. So trying to drive the interest that we do want our coaches better educated because when our, our coaches are better educated, our players stick in the sport longer. There's no massive shock that when our players work with train coaches, they have a better experience. So trying to make sure that we train our coaches to, to be holistic with what they're doing. And it's not just yep. about let's develop a, a great basketballer. It's actually let's develop a really great person and we want to teach things like empathy, resilience, uh, perseverance, those kinds of things as well. And, you know, we're super fortunate in in sport in general that our athletes are involved because the amount of life skills that you get through sport in general uh, are out of this world. You can't replicate it in anything else you do. It's I'm, I'm a firm believer that if we had more athletes playing sport, we'd have a better society in a whole. It, it happens mm. um, because you learn things like teamwork, how to win, how to lose, that sort of stuff. So trying to, to get our coaches educated on you are responsible for this is is a really big thing. So it's not what you know as a coach, it's about what you can get across to your players so that they can implement what they need to implement at the time. So making sure they have that positive experience where they've they've come out of it feeling really good about themselves and they haven't been chewed out by a coach that's just had a bad day at work or something like that. You've got to shelve that and leave that at the door. You've got yeah. to try and find a way to, to make it about your athletes and make it as positive for them as you possibly can. So, you know, we're really lucky that we have a, a, a vast number of coach educators in Victoria that, that go and take courses on our behalf. Um, you know, I'm regularly out on weekends taking those as well. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the people like Dave Herbert, who's a phenomenal coach educator that's our under-19s gems head coach, been involved at the WNBL level, NBL1 level, uh, was our state team assistant coach for the under-18 girls this year. Like, those are the sort of people that we have delivering coaching course content for us. So we're really lucky that our coaches get access to those sorts of people as well. Uh, it's a phenomenal you know, ability um, to, to network, yeah, to yeah. get involved with other people. Yeah, for sure. Um, going back to, I guess, your state team coaches, you know, what's the feedback process like for them and how do you evaluate, you know, someone who's a, who's a state team coach? And and I'm sort of thinking, obviously, you know, there's the win-loss and how they went yeah. at uh, the different events that they take the team to, but do you look at other stuff as well? Yeah, no question. It's uh, They're really the flaghead or the, the figurehead, I suppose, for lack of a better term, for that age group and, and we rely on them heavily in regard to how they act uh, what they do and the win-loss is a big part of it obviously there's a, a little bit of added pressure when you you coach for Vic Metro that there's an expectation that you you win yes you know it's um it comes with it and I've been fortunate enough to lose twice as a Vic Metro <laughs> head coach so you know that that comes with its own challenges but it's uh there is a review process and sometimes it's as simple as look we ran into a better team yeah. Um, you know, we didn't have the cattle for whatever reason. Injuries play their part over the course. So it's not as simple as, well, that's the middle you got and that's where you, you came out at. Um, like I, I certainly know the last time I, I lost, which was 2015, we ran into uh, that Queensland North group with uh, Sam Froling, uh, Aiden Krauss, uh, Cody Statman. I mean, that's a loaded group. When we look yeah. back on it now and think, damn, there's some talent in that group. So it's not always as simple as, well, you won, so you must have done a good job and you, you lost, so you must have done a bad job. A lot yeah. of times it's like, well, how did the group develop? Did you pick long-term athletes? Did you pick for the short term as well? And that's something that we really have to, to be mindful of in team selection is are we picking for now or are we picking for later? 
Mm. Um, and you know, there's, there's no easy answer on that because no. sometimes you can break an athlete if you pick them too soon for something. Um, it, it actually really hurts them. So trying to find a way to have you left the program in a better spot for having taken that team is usually one of the, the big things that comes out of it. And all our state team coaches undergo a review with our high-performance coaches afterwards who obviously spent the week at Nationals as well and they've seen how it's all played out and unfolded. And, yeah. and they'll discuss things like, um, was the team correctly selected? Did you have the right offensive system or defensive system? Or why did you not change this? Or why did you change this? And, and a lot of times there's perfectly valid reasons for it. It's, yeah. It's very easy to to make assessments from the stands. Anyone can do yeah. that. Uh, that's you know that's the super easy part. The, the real quick hot take, not difficult. Uh, but to try and find out what exactly is going on and why things happen, well, that's the harder part. Yeah. And do you have a, um, I guess, just a, a more of a high level strategy? I'm thinking of you know those coaches in those age groups, like, a, and I guess I'm thinking of the point of just to build a bit of familiarity for, I guess, the players. Okay, also, just to have that consistency year on year. Yeah, no question. So, it's a bit of an unwritten rule that you tend to get three years as a head coach. Okay. Um, so, when you're appointed, and it's certainly not written in stone. Um, like, if you've chosen not to do your second or third year, that's quite okay. It's, yep. They're not obligated to that by any chance. They'll still have to apply every year. Uh, but it does take a little while to sort of get your head around what Nationals is like as a head coach. And I certainly was of the belief in 2014 when I was my first head coach uh, that I was absolutely ready for it, like no question. And then I got to game one and it's like, damn, I wouldn't mind a couple of extra years as an assistant coach. <laughs> uh, there's some pressure that goes with this. Like it's, yeah, You yeah. don't sort of realize it at the time either and you, you don't get any better unless you do it. Yeah, uh, it's you do have to put yourself in that situation where uh, you need to be a little bit comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, it, it's not easy. So everyone will have a, a different experience with it. Uh, sometimes you can have a, a really horrible week, uh, but you get some great stories out of it. Sometimes you can just get the wrong crossover and that hurts you as well. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, and it's tournament play at its best. You never really know if, if you have a, an injured player at the wrong time, that can change your whole week. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, and I've, I guess as a coach, I've, I've probably been to um, three or four as well, like in the 16s and 18s and 20s sort of age groups. And yeah, it's a different experience, certainly a bit of a pressure cooker for the players. And um, but, but, you know, certainly players grow and I think coaches grow too. You know, like you, you go in maybe with a bit of a mindset of this is how it might be and you got to change things on the fly and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's uh, never as easy as what you thought it was that's yeah. sure. it's, uh, you come out of it and think and you can only prepare for so much too we all have limited preparation and things like that and, and it, yep. it really is an unknown like I know with our 16s teams uh, we play a lot of youth league and under 18 teams in preparation yep. but that doesn't necessarily equate to what we're going to see at nationals sometimes you can just be out physical by the older age groups yep. and not necessarily at executed, which you will potentially get an AJC. So trying to find out where you're at, you really don't know until the end of your first game. Uh, it's like, well, okay, we're either pretty good, uh, pretty bad, or somewhere in between. Like yeah. You've got to try and work yeah. that out. And does the bottom age, top age thing come into it with you guys yeah. or not really? Uh, it's not a conscious thing. So yeah. if an athlete is good enough, they'll make it regardless. Yeah. Uh, we've certainly had some bottom age kids over the years in particular. We seem to find more of them in under 18s. Uh, I don't know if that's a maturation thing, um, but they they seem to have more bottom age kids at an under 18 level. And that's probably because they've had a little bit of exposure to that point. It's um, for an athlete that's come out of potentially under 14 clubs, 
uh, and then gone to try and make an under-16 state team less than probably six months later, that's a pretty mm. big jump. Yeah. Um, so at that level, it becomes a little bit difficult. And, and obviously, athletes grow and develop at different rates too. You know, it's we've all seen the man-child in under-14s that is just normal <laughs> in under-16s. So it's a really different sort of space as well. But we are conscious that we need to have a little bit of a holdover um, and there will usually be an emergency spot that's a little bit weighted towards the bottom major, um, but it's not a hard and fast rule by any means. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, Rob, um, just I guess wrapping up, like, uh, how's how's the outlook for you guys there now in the next month or two? You know, what are, what are you really focusing on to to get players uh, back on the court? Uh, so, the big thing for us at the moment is just functional movement. Yeah. Um, so, Zoe Carr, our high performance coach for our, uh, our country women, has done a, a mountain of work. Yeah. Uh, trying to make sure that our athletes are not broken when they come back. They've just spent potentially three months off. The last thing mm. we need is for them to have another month off somewhere. So we can't get straight back into competitive gameplay because those athletes haven't done the work. Uh, and that's not to say that they've been missing the the mark on this, but they simply haven't been put in that situation where they've needed to, to change direction and run and jump and do all those kinds of things as well. So the functional movement side of things is really important. So she's putting together some session plans and some video at the moment for all, all our coaches. And that's at all levels. That's from our domestic coaches all the way up to our, um, our rep level coaches um, as to what they can do with their training sessions. So that's the, the big thing at the moment is let's make sure we don't break the athletes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was doing some filming with her the other day. She uh, had one of the, the SDP athletes in under 18s down and just watching her move that hasn't been able to do a great deal over the last little bit. It's going to take a long time for our athletes to get back into this. So the slow build is really important. And, and thankfully, with, with Zoe's work, it'll, uh, it'll hopefully pay off for a lot of our athletes. Yeah, yeah, and totally right. I think I was talking to another coach on a podcast during the weekend and we talked about, you know, obviously that risk of injury and, and, you know, just getting ready again physically and mentally for um, competition. And, you know, we're sort of going from like somewhat a little bit over, you know, zero percent in terms of what what players are doing, and expecting them to, you know, get back to a hundred percent. So, um, yeah, it's got to be a stage thing, I think. It does, and let's face it, this whole year is probably going to have a bit of an asterisk on it anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. no one's going to remember if you won your competition in twenty twenty. What they're going to remember is, are any of your athletes still walking? Are they <laughs> are they still playing in two years' time? That's going to be the big thing. So, really, it's the the welfare of the athlete that sort of comes first. And I get it as coaches. You know, we want to control what we can control, and, yep. and sometimes we feel like instilling an offense or a defense. Well, that's how we have an impact on the game, and that's not always the case. It's uh, it's do our players want to keep coming back, and that's usually the litmus test for to how you've been going as a coach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Rob, we could probably talk for another hour or two, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. Get on <laughs> with your Saturday. Uh, really, no worries. have appreciated uh, you making some time for the for the podcast today. It's been great just to share some ideas too. Like uh, I did, really, uh, I've sort of often wondered about how things work down there in Victoria, and you know, just that sort of that factory of players that you, you bring yeah. out every year, and, and what's you know what goes in behind that. So it's been a good insight for me. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, it's fantastic what you're doing to be able to sort of reach the basketball community. It's uh, the more our, our coaches can talk and interact with each other, I think is a really good thing. So certainly appreciate the time and, and what you do for the sport as well. Thanks, Rob. Much appreciated. And, and same with me, mate. I really do keep the uh, podcast up. I know uh, we were talking offline before just about the time and effort that it takes yeah. to put a podcast together. And I guess uh, on that, just what, what makes a good podcast for you? Uh, 
to be honest, it sort of changes a little bit. Like the, the topic is kind of key, uh, but the ones where you don't realize where the time has gone, they're the yeah. fun ones. Yeah. Uh, where you don't realize, you get to have a little bit of fun with it. You, you get to, there's a little bit of banter involved without going over the top. Yeah. But the ones where you can get some teaching out of it, but you can also get a little bit of um, just fun. Yeah. Like it's because I'm, and I'm sure I'm like everyone else. When I drive, uh, I usually listen to podcasts. My biggest issue at that point is writing down the teaching points that I've got from that per, that <laughs> podcast at the time as I'm trying to drive, and it's like this is not technically legal. Uh, there's got to be a better way to do it. So yeah, yeah the ones that are, are enjoyable to listen to are the ones that I you know I really enjoy producing as well. Yeah, good stuff. Well, and all the best with your podcast coming up. Uh, I'll put a link to the show notes. Uh, get get awesome. people more on board and uh, get you more five-star ratings. So, um. Appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. All right, mate. Have a, good, have a good weekend. You too. Okay, Bye. see ya. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can get in touch with me through my email at australianbasketballcoach at gmail.com. That's australianbasketballcoach, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Also, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at OzBballCoach and also on Facebook with Australian Basketball Coach. So uh, looking forward to hearing from you and thanks again for listening.